Does your ass smell? Do you want to feel fresh and clean all day long? Of course you do. That's why you need soap. Soap is specifically formulated to gently clean, leaving you feeling refreshed and confident. Washing your ass with soap provides more than just a clean feeling and helps to maintain good hygiene and can even reduce the risk of skin irritation and infection. Soap, the simple solution for a clean and refreshed ass. Try it today and feel the difference. Soap, available wherever they sell soap. Kevin, this week... Since uh, we are talking about Alan Smithy, uh, I thought I should come up with a a system for us to come up with our own pseudonyms. All right, do you want to try it? Uh, uh, okay. Uh huh. Just gonna be like uh, finding your um your hooker name. <laughs> exactly. So okay. how we're gonna do it is think of of the first name of the first film character that comes into your head right now. What's the first name of the first film character that pops into your head? Uh, uh, um, Martin. Martin, okay. Now, turn your head to three o'clock. Okay, right now. Three o'clock, that's over your right shoulder. What are you looking at? What are your eyes focusing on? Uh, wardrobe. Wow. (laughs) And the Oscar goes to Martin Wardrobe. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Is that it? Jesus Christ. That's it. (laughs) That was it. I wouldn't make a Bond girl with that name. I'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. What did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello, and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where each week we pick our favourite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host Will, writer of three films plus the Christmas special, and I'm joined once again by my co-host and writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV, Kevin. Kevin, hello. (laughs) That was very enthusiastic. I can tell you're excited to get on the mic tonight. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's been a while for me, Martin Wardrobe. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> it's awful. How are you, Kevin? I'm not too bad. I'm uh, I'm good. I'm excited to to record tonight because um, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a couple of weeks for us. Yeah, it has been a few weeks, you know. Uh, but the, the the podcast is out in the world now, which is incredibly strange we're out of sync with the rest of the universe but as we're recording this the podcast is out and people are listening to it all over the globe which is incredibly surreal because we're just anyway um yeah hello argentina and uh, new zealand hello new zealand and uh i love i love the state of georgia (laughs) and our our listeners in all of scandinavia which is which is which is great i'm a huge scandy fan and um, I was going to say, and all our all our supporters in Ireland, thanks for listening. Yeah, and the UK. Don't let's not forget about the UK listeners. It's uh, you know, it's it's really they can't help us. Um, they can, and uh, it's so isn't it lovely to get all the feedback on Twitter and um, the engagement we're getting from our listeners on social media is just it's mad. <laughs> it's mad. Yeah. It's very much appreciated. What does the eggplant emoji mean? <laughs> 
I just keep getting sent that with like a king. I don't know what it means. Oh no, that's just a reminder that this is the time of the year you should be planting your eggplant seeds. Oh, uh, okay. Whatever you do with that? Okay. Yeah, it's just it comes around a certain time of the year, and you just yeah, you have to make sure you get your seeds in, Kevin. Oh, okay. <laughs> Kevin, I know. Listen, we people are used to what the format is of the show now, but of course there might be some new listeners. Could you give us a very brief? quick synopsis of what we're doing here um, for new people uh yeah it's called the best bits because each week we get a scene suggestion from this app which we've pre-programmed with about 300 and plus scene suggestions we spin it at the end of every episode it comes up with a topic that could be anything from action scene to a zombie scene and um we come back and we sort of talk about it and this week the scene suggestion that will is gonna sort of delve into is alan smithy so, uh, who is Alan Smithy, Will? Who is Alan Smithy? Well, uh, well, I suppose before I answer that question, Kevin, this is the thing. Before I answer that question, I want to ask you, are, do you do you watch and enjoy watching bad movies? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, see, I'm really susceptible to uh, influence. So I find... Um, Bad movies, like going to a, a comedy club and watching a stand-up uh, crash and burn. Like, I I don't know what it is, but I just find it very uh, cringy and uncomfortable. So I don't get the same enjoyment out of watching bad movies as other people do. I can't sort of have that sneering sort of like, um, uh, like enjoyment of seeing how bad something's made because I feel like it's so easy to make a bad movie and I'm, terrified that I will uh, pick up something from um, a bad film and write it into the next scene that I'm writing. So I, I, I can't I can't relax. I can't sort of let myself go and just enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, the way that loads of people can do. So I'm in the same I'm in the same boat as you. I'm in the same boat. I think when you're in, when you're in the game of making films, I, I, I firmly believe that majority of people are there to try and do their absolute best. And uh, personally, I know that every single first draft, like rough, uh, rough, unseen draft of anything I've ever written, is awful. You know, it's really terrible. And um, I can, I can vouch for cons- that. <laughs> well, thanks for it. You know, the, no. the, um, the, 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 but you know what I mean is that sense of like, oh, yeah, God, yeah. if this, anyone sees this, it's going to be terrible. So you're, uh, you're, you're in the, well, I'm in a perpetual state of trying to make my scripts better and hoping and praying that the people that I, that I end up collaborating with uh, have that same kind of panic that they don't want to make a terrible film either. Um, and so, yeah, whenever I see a bad film, I kind of, I just feel bad for the people who are there going, that's it. Oh, yeah. God, I wish I feel mortified for those that have tried and failed. It's like, Oh yeah. yeah I know how easy it is for things to sort of go askew. Um, but yeah, I I can't put that out of my mind. So this week, it's going to sort of test our limits then, isn't it? Because we're talking about Alan Smitty and who is Alan Smitty? Uh, well, for those that aren't familiar with the nom de plume of the DGA, but Ah. who is he? Well, I, well, I've spent the past week learning all about Alan Smithy and the many, many dozens of films that he's made in the many different genres that he's made these films in. Alan Smithy, I suppose most of the most of our listeners already know that Alan Smithy is 
an invented nom de plume uh, given uh, in, uh, for the director of uh, a film in which a director wants his name off of a film, right? And it, it originated back in 1968, I'm pretty sure it's 1968, on a, a, a universal Western called Death of a Gunfighter. This gunfighter was the law for 20 years until a hate-ridden town took the law into its own hands and turned on the gunfighter. Richard Woodmark, rebel with a badge in Death of a Gunfighter. We don't have any law in this jerkwater town. He's the law. Which was directed by Roger Totten and uh, starring uh, Richard Widmark, I believe. Are you outing him here by saying his name? <laughs> no, well, no, it's already, well, I can tell you, well, it's it's well known now. But basically, Richard Widmark, the star and the director, fell out maybe three quarters away during shooting. And uh, Universal were in a bit of a bind. So they called in uh, uh, director of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Dirty Harry films, Don Siegel. A great director. Sorry, really good director. And uh, he finished out the shooting of the film. So when the film was actually uh, being cut together and released, neither director, which is unusual, I suppose, neither director wanted their name on the film. So the problem went to the the, the director's, uh, director's guild. And they decided that they were going to put because because Universal didn't want uh, the story to come out that the director two directors have basically you know refused to put their name yeah. on this film. It looks bad for them, doesn't it? It looks like they have been putting directors on a short leash. And it also looks bad that the film that that the the, the film might be bad, and it'll be bad press for the film when they want to sell tickets and get people get bums on seats, you know. Mm. So they came up with a generic enough title, which was Alan Smithy, and I actually found an interview with the the the, the, the member of the Directors Guild who actually came up with it, and it's actually kind of cool to hear. Oh it. wow, Alan Smithy is uh, a figment; he's an imaginative uh, or an imaginary, I should say, uh, director who does not exist. And so people started saying, yes, all right, let's invent a name. Somebody said, how about the name Smith, eventually? Well, he said, well, that's silly because undoubtedly we have or will have a director named Smith. One of our men said, how about adding an E to it, S-M-I-T-H-E? And we said, well, that too could be uh, an existent name. And finally I said, look, if you really are so uh, hung up on the word Smith, how about adding two E's? It's very unlikely that there would be a Smithy, S-M-I-T-H double E. And that was adopted. So we have Alan Smithy, who is now the pseudonym for all directors who don't want their work portrayed as their own. And for uh, for female directors, it's I think it's Elena Smithy. Actually, I think it was Elena ah, Smithy they had in there. I was wondering that. I was wondering whether there was a female yeah. um, a version of Alan Smithy, Elena Smithy. Yeah, wow. there is. Has it ever been used? Uh, no, not as far as I've uh, in, I've encountered so far. There you um, go. But the gas the gas thing about it is is that the the gambit worked. Because the film came out and Roger Ebert gave it uh, a glowing review and <laughs> talked about director Alan Smithy and how he had such control of the camera and, you know, was able to command good close-ups. And even the New York, New York Times gave it a good review as well. It was kind of a, a good success story for Universal Pictures. And the other thing about the Director's Guild thing is that once you get your name off uh, a film, get a change to Alan Smithy, you have to uh, sign a kind of a non-disclosure. Or, you know, uh, you, you know, you, you are not allowed you can't talk to about say, you cannot talk about Fight Club. <laughs> you cannot talk about Alan Smithy. So, yeah, it was kind of like this uh, very, very well-kept secret for a couple of decades about Alan Smithy. And 
it's it's one of those things where there were a couple of films like in the 70s another film a Burt Reynolds movie got the director got his name title changed retroactively and it actually a film that was shot before 1968 um but it was released later than that and but Alan Smithy kind of disappeared throughout the 70s um because directors were in this is a kind of an indicator in the 70s directors in Hollywood actually started to get kind of final cut of their films so the films that were mm. being released were the films that they got final cut on. So there were very few, uh, there were very few uh, Alan Smithy films Disgruntled released around directors. that time. Yeah, there were very, very few. But uh, so that's kind of like the origins of where Alan Smithy came from, right? But things were getting in here, Kevin, and we're going to start talking about. You know, I'm going to start going through the kind of like the the history of Alan Smithy and the Alan Smithy titles. I just want to know from you, did you have a think? Because there aren't that many. It's a difficult topic because it goes against the very concept of our kind of fundamental premise of our show, which is we're talking about our personal best bits. And I can't say that personally, I have, there are too many Alan Smithy films out there that I consider to be great. Um, So this has been a kind of a challenging topic. Did you, how did you get your head around it? So yeah, so there there aren't that many night uh, there aren't that many Alan Smithy films that I uh, can say that I've even seen to be honest. So trying to pick one that um, spoke to me was tough enough. So I was looking at directors that have disowned their films but kept their name on it, and there's loads of those guys. I mean, you've got uh, David Fincher who has all but disowned Alien Three. And I quite like that film, even though he refuses to do any interviews on it or, or even um, uh, speak about it or acknowledge it. But it's a it's a film that's not particularly loved by a lot of the fans of the Ellen Ripley f- franchise, but. I still enjoy it and I like it and I like how nihilistic and dark it is and it gives a great heroic sacrifice to, to a Ripley character. It's certainly better in my eyes yeah. than um, Alien Resurrection. But there were also some other ones like um, Alfred Hitchcock with Rope. He's got it! He knows. He knows. He knows. All right, he knows. Easy, I'll take care of you. Won't. I'd just as soon kill you as kill him. Thinks that's his worst film, um, which I was surprised wow. about. Um, you have Michael Mann, who takes his name off of uh, every film of his that gets recut for uh, the airline version. So all of his films mm-hmm. have Alan Smithy on them when they're um, either edited for TV or edited for airplanes. Um, Woody Allen wasn't particularly happy with um, Annie Hall. There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life. Uh, He felt that his... Yeah, he felt that his intention with that film was completely lost and that it was incomprehensible because it was meant to be a stream of consciousness sort of um, take on his character. And instead, he focused it down wow. on the relationship with Annie Hall, and it became sort of a rom-com and one of his most beloved films. Um, yeah, I love that one. Yeah, yeah. But 
I didn't sort of land on any of those. Instead, I went with a film where a director took his name off of it entirely, where there is no Alan Smitty moniker on it. It's completely blank. Oh, And it's not because the film is bad. It was sort of done out of a a sense of humility. And it is the 2019 sci-fi film that came out on Amazon uh, called The Vast of Night. Number, please. Oh, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen this. Tell me more. So The Vast of Night is directed by a guy called Andrew Patterson, and he self-financed it out of Oklahoma City. He's sort of like a a commercials director. Um, And he went off and he made this film, produced it, as I said, financed it, uh, wrote it, and used a pseudonym for uh, the script. He took the name of James Montague, um, I'm registered wow. with the WGA and I think that is even the name that's used as editor on the film. And uh, he put it out after doing, sort of playing all these different roles, uh, a director, producer, financier, writer and editor. And he thought it was a bit mm-hmm. sort of arrogant or um, embarrassing to have uh, a film by uh, his own name at the end of it. And so he took it off and uh, it went out uh, uh, in this day and age without any sort of author uh, name to it um, but of course the yeah. internet being the internet it, it got out there and it's um it's a fantastic film and I still don't think I understand why he took his name off it because you know you should be proud of it it's, it's a really good film uh, it's full of atmosphere and it's a, a 1950s set sort of uh, sci-fi film where um, these two characters are uh, basically encountering these strange radio signals um, and these disappearances that are happening in this little uh, uh, small town in New Mexico. And um, I don't want to spoil it because it's one of the most recent films we've talked on this podcast, but it is one mm-hmm. to definitely watch because it's just dripping with style. And as Steven Soderbergh said, there are three things that he looks for in a director, and that is uh, control of performance, control with the camera, and control with story. And for a first mm-hmm. film, he considered that to be a masterful debut. So he became a champion for it. And, um, but there's a fantastic interview, which you know I can share with you now, um, on mm. uh, the New York Times, where he gets into uh, a particular scene in the film. I'm Andrew Patterson, and I'm the director of The Vast of Night. So the actress here is Sierra McCormick, and she's playing Faye, who is all by herself with the 500 members of her town all at a basketball game. So the movie is set in November of 1958, and the setting is in a fictional town of Cayuga, New Mexico. And the first thing that happens in this scene is you hear a very new sound. Um, We wanted the sound in particular to be new in cinema. And so we worked pretty hard at mixing a number of elements together. And then, and then Faye responds to it in a way that initially is, it, it frames it as a viewer. Like you, you, you see that she doesn't understand it. And even though she's not threatened by it, she certainly starts taking immediate action. Disconnect and then try again. It's all. Large object holding over my land off of our 
Ma'am, is this an emergency? And what we were aiming to do was, in her performance, not go to the sort of extreme that you would probably expect in this scene from if you were watching a horror film or you were watching a different kind of genre. We wanted her to be very grounded and continue to be the stand-in for the viewer. On set, there is no sound being played. The sound was a year away from being created at that point. Um, and so she's just playing to an AD reading lines very dryly in the room, but but not necessarily in a way that you can play off of as an actor. So it, it truly was both the sound and the people on the other end of the line were yet to be cast and yet to be created. So there's no... Sierra had to very much do this um, on her own, reading against someone that has... No training in acting. I just want to see if it... Just call over it. Well, I don't want to disturb him. I think the only thing I told her as a director was, you know... Ethel? This is something that Ethel? is entrancing. It's mesmerizing. It's not scary. It's not threatening. And if anything, uh, it's the thing that's going to take you down the rabbit hole. And um, it's fantastic. And the actors are all wow. unknowns, but they play a blinder in it. They're so skilled and they obviously had drummed that script uh, like, a, like a play. And it really is just gorgeous to watch. And uh, it's quite a mesmerizing scene. So I'm cheating, Will, but that would be my pick. Oh, I love it. Vast of Night. I, uh, that's, a fan- that's fantastic because you're picking something that, that hasn't popped up for me. All I've heard, I know I've heard of the, of the, I've heard the title in the past, but, you know, to get such a kind of glowing recommendation has definitely gone on my, my watch list. I can't, it's a class. Thanks. Yeah, just go I, in I, watching it, uh, knowing that it's good and that it's a particular okay. sort of tone. Um, but don't yeah. look up anything about it. Don't sort of read into it uh, to try and figure out what it's about. Just sort of let it just wash over you because it's an 89 minute yeah. film and uh, it, it'll breeze past, but it's, it's really transportive. There's some gorgeous like um, um, Steadicam shots in that that are uh, wonderful yeah. where it just travels all the way through this town and uh, it's incredible what they did you know for under a million wow jeez that's brilliant Kevin there you go cool that is so cool so Kevin right so as I said uh, previously Alan Smithy kind of went off the map during the 70s and the reason I think he went off the map is because you know directors were kind of getting final cuts on films but as the studio system started to regain control of the final cut of of their of their product, all of a sudden you begin to see a resurgence of Alan Smithy film uh, directors' names appearing over the titles. For instance, there's a there's a, a film called Let's Get a Harry, which came out in 1986. There's uh, Put Another Shrimp on the Barbie, which this was like a Cheech Marin comedy. Um, there was an Australian one, kind of like following on the success of Crocodile Dundee. There was another one called Ghost Fever from 1987, and. Quite famously, Dennis Hopper, who he has had his trouble with the old alcohol and drug abuse, and um, mm. might have had a bit of an, a, an erratic kind of 
uh, track record. He had, you know, become a successful film director in his own right from Easy Easy Rider on. And he uh, directed a film called Backtrack. Uh, but the, when he was off shooting another film, the studio then completely recut his film and released it as Catchfire. And um, I found a fantastic interview with him. And he got, he successfully got his Alan Smithy um, director's title uh, put on that and his name removed from the film that was released as Catchfire. Don't you have to go to the DGA and you have to prove that you didn't have adequate support in making the oh, film? Oh, yeah. So it's you know, a tough. It's, it's tough. Yeah, it's not an easy thing. You can't just sort of like just oh, go no. and say, "I'm unhappy. I want my name off it." You've got to actually prove yeah. that they have sabotaged your um, intentions as filmmaker. And um, yeah, yeah. So it's it's obviously a disastrous thing for all involved. But uh, yeah. yeah, who knows? Who knows what really goes on to sort of lead to those sort of titles? Because making a film is is so difficult under the most you know blissful of circumstances but to um to have anything where you feel like you're just not supported or you can't actually do what you intended to do uh, it must be horrible mm-hmm. filmmakers have uh, described the 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 process of going to the dga as being like going to court where they, they, they rip you to shreds. The DGA rip you to shreds when you're trying to get your name off the film. Like, they really grill the directors and yeah. uh, make them fight their case that maybe, like, the studio will, there'll be contracts made, like, you know, the studio will demand the film come in at a certain rating, at a certain length, and uh, you've got, like, X amount of days of editing, you know. Um, but and, and, if, and if you break any of those, uh, I suppose, uh, parameters or, you know... Um, uh, if you uh, th- th- those agreements, then they had their the studio was in the right and just to shut you out and say no, you you, you broke those. We we're just taking control of this film. I want to ask you: Do you know of any screenwriters who've taken their name off of um, uh, film credits? No. Well, writers usually fight to have their name put on <laughs> film credits. Yeah, yeah, uh, desperately because the financial rewards are so um, so lucrative. Uh, well, depending on whether it's a studio project or not. Um, so arbitration is its own thing where there are people that even won Academy Awards without really, you know, uh, being, um, regarded as having written the actual script. Uh, but in terms of a writer wanting to take their name off of a film, the only one that I can think of as you're asking me that is, um, Nigel Neal, the British uh, fantasy and sci-fi writer who took his name off of Halloween 3. And so the director ended up getting the, the... Season of the Witch? Yeah, the one that is sort of considered to be the redheaded stepchild of that franchise, but no, it's sort of, it, it seems to be um, having a bit of a resurgence and people know, myself included, considered to be the second best of that um, whole run of films, the, the Michael myers list uh, entry. You happen to know anything about this Cochrane? All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Season He's watching you, friend, I guarantee you that. Hey, Mr. Cochran, just what is the final process? Fellas, I was just kidding. But it's, a, it's such yeah. a stylish, batshit, bonkers film. But I love it. Yeah. And I love the music of it. I'm always sort of the, pulling that one up to write yeah. uh, to the Season of the Witch score. It's so cool. Yeah, man. That's the first Halloween film I saw. And I went in expecting to see Michael Myers. And I was so disappointed because... But that whatever that ads that they had on running on, on loop <laughs> on the TV just got stuck in my head for days afterwards. 
and yeah. you know people died you, you should play it here now so that it will just become an earworm in everybody's <laughs> okay. i'm going to play that piece of music right now and prepare for yourself to be completely uh, your brain destroyed for but you should also play tom atkins going stop it stop it stop it <laughs> i love that yeah, film, so- but it is weird it's all jack-o'-lanterns the third commercial it's still a police well, take out the third channel, the third channel. It's still running. Stop it, please. For God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to... Please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 It's a straight... And that was when... No, I do want to go into a whole Halloween podcast. I'm not a Halloween expert. But the original concept of the Halloween franchise was that it was going to be an anthology series that Michael Myers was so good if they stuck to that and this was Halloween 3 was their first kind of like foray into kind of telling a totally different story and it didn't work Mm. it's because they made the the second one a direct follow up I think if they'd done Halloween 3 as the second one people would have immediately accepted the idea of each Halloween there would be a new um, uh, different spooky tale like the Treehouse Horror Um, episodes of The Simpsons, just a, a new one each year, and that would have been so so cool. I would have loved that, but yeah. alas, wasn't to be. So Nigel Neal took his name off it. Nigel Neal, that's really interesting. What happened then was that uh, in 1990, Dennis Hopper released a film called Backtrack, or he directed a film called Backtrack. The studio recut it while he was off shooting, and I actually found a really interesting interview that he did on BBC uh, talking about that process and talking about why he wanted to get his name off the film. The Alan Smithy thing for me was like, you know, I, uh, I didn't direct, I mean, I directed that movie. What can I say? Every foot of film I directed, but I didn't edit it. And the editing of a film is directing a film. I mean, a person can take your footage when I sometimes have 40, 45 hours of film. They can make any movie they want. That doesn't make it a Dennis Hopper film. That doesn't make it mean that it's directed by Dennis Hopper. Uh, Up until that point, he had final cut on all of his films. And the fact, simple fact was, once, if a filmmaker doesn't have the the final cut or the edit of their film, they're not really the filmmaker. They are the director, but they're not, Mm. it's not unfilmed to Dennis Hopper anymore, you know? Um, Well, I consider it to be that there are three authors of a film. It's the writer, the director, and the editor. And you mm. often see that when um, studios or producers are trying to undermine the director, the two people that they will fire first are the two linchpins to the director's vision, which is they'll get rid of the editor and they'll get rid of the writer. And mm-hmm. that just leaves the, the sort of the director vulnerable then to um, uh, push back against things that they don't think are in the film's best interest. So I, I think yeah. editors are, are crucially important. And funnily enough, I was listening to a podcast, the, the Roger Deakins podcast with Frances McDormand, and she said right. something which I've never heard um, expressed before, but I can understand where she's coming from. And she said that film is an editor's medium, not a director's medium, but an oh. editor's medium. And uh, yeah, she will, she will make choices on uh, projects based on who's going to edit the film. Yeah. Well, I can tell you one thing. This podcast is certainly an editor's medium. I've said a lot of stupid (laughs) shit. (laughs) I've had to cut out. (laughs) But it's so true, Kevin. It is so true. Like how, and and interestingly enough, uh, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I find the discipline of writing and, and shaping a script 
is very similar to the discipline. Now, I've edited stuff in the past very on a very, very uh, amateurish level. But the, the, the sensation and the discipline that I employ is very similar to the discipline I employ when I'm writing and shaping a script. There's a, there's a beautiful... Uh, Condensing? Sp- yeah, well, you know, when you're seeing the marriage of the image and, the so- image and sound and you're making them play and flow together and how cuts, how uh, the, just by snipping a half a second or a millisecond here or there, it's, it, you know, a, a film is completely and utterly changed, can be completely and utterly changed in its edit. Well, we've and, just seen um, proof of that just recently, haven't we, with uh, Zack Snyder's yeah. Justice League? Where yeah, absolutely. That is, it's a lot of the same footage, but it's completely uh, recontextualized based on um, interstitial scenes that were shot to sort of add humor with the Warner Brothers cut that was overseen by Joss Whedon that still has Zack yeah. Snyder's name on it. And mm-hmm. the more recent Zack Snyder cut, which um, sort of restores a lot of the, the original intention with the same footage. And they are vastly different films, even though both of them say that they're directed by Zack Snyder. Oh, I couldn't remember what was on the, the title. So is Joss Whedon anywhere on the, the credit of the, the original, the first cut, we'll say? Um, I don't I believe remember, so. Right? I don't believe so. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because that was, that. I remember that film being, it was like literally two hours on the nose, that's that cut. Whereas, how long is the Zack Snyder cut? It's four hours and, um, you know, honestly, I think it's a vastly better film and it's a much more enjoyable wow. film. And I prefer okay. it to the other um, uh, DC EU films that Zack Snyder has made. So okay. um, I think it's, I think for f- film fans and for people that have an interest in film, uh, it's a must watch really, to be honest with you, because you get to see how a vision can be completely compromised by forces behind the scenes that don't really mm-hmm. have to wear the um, indiscretions or the, the, the failures of uh, a film. It, it usually falls on the shoulders of the director. And if you sort of look at both of those films, because some of the scenes have been reshot for uh, Joss Whedon's uh, cut, and mm-hmm. the aesthetic is so different, the tone is so different, the performances are different, the lighting is different, and it just sort of colours the whole thing. Kevin, is Henry Cavill's upper lip different? <laughs> Very much so. Oh God, it actually God. looks human, though. Way oh, hey, crazy. <laughs> Didn't look like it was trying to run off his face. Can we ask you some questions? It's for a podcast. Well, in that case. How many people that you saved have you saved? Wait, I... Never mind. Does your thing really stand for hope? Yes, it does. But it looks like an S. Yes, it's meant to. It's, it's meant to wind. Like a river, it comes and goes. Okay, I'm going to bring it back, Kevin. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to drive this. I'm going to drive us uh, onto my pick, right? Off a cliff. And yeah, <laughs> Alan Smithy's at the steering wheel. No, he's not. <laughs> um, so, like you know, throughout the '90s, then there were a few more Alan Smithy titles, like and in horror movies, like The Birds Two, Land's End, which I've never seen in 1994. And for all you Hellraiser fans, that I'm was sure directed well. by uh, Rick Rosenthal, who did Halloween <laughs> Two. So bringing it back. Oh, there hello! Dropping some Call knowledge back. juice right there. <laughs> and for all you Hellraiser fla- fans out there, I'm sure you're well aware of Hellraiser Hellraiser Bloodline, which was released in 1996, which um, I've seen clips of, and you know, and um, that film was out there. But Alan Smithy 
was pretty much put into retirement in 1996. And I have to go into the story of Alan's video. Not the story, but it's actually so ridiculous that we have to mention where Adam Smitty came, his career came to an end. And it came uh, at the hand of a, of a reoccurring, well, he's now a reoccurring character, someone who's already come up in your wonderful sex scenes episode. And it's our buddy, <laughs> Joe Esterhaas. Uh, <laughs> Joe Esterhaas was the man having... The myth, the legend. The man, the myth, the legend. He was, uh, this is 1996, He was, Mm -hmm. uh, after having a a decade or so of great success, he was becoming uh, embittered to the Hollywood system. And he wrote a a bitter and biting film called An Alan Smithy Film, Burn Hollywood Burn. (laughs) This is the inside story on the greatest action-adventure film ever made and never seen. Because the director stole the film. I didn't want to release another terrible movie. This was a very big picture with a very big budget. Whoopi and Jackie and Sly Mother. So we all go down in flames. I'm Whoopi Goldberg. I can't die. I never die, okay? On the line is the director of <laughs> Alan Smithy. Kiss my bum, Larry. Fuck her up. Are you fucking up? Yes. Gone like Burt Reynolds. Gone <laughs> and like the idea Bert. of that film is that there is, it's about a director who's hired, who's contracted to come on and hired to direct an action movie starring Sylvester Stallone, Jackie Chan and Whoopi Goldberg. Only the film I'm that in. he makes is so bad that he wants to take his name off it. And he goes to the DGA. But the problem is, is the director's name is Alan Smithy. So the only name that can be applied is Alan Smithy. <laughs> so he has this so whole... Stupid. It's so stupid. It's this whole rigmarole to try and uh, get, to, to get the, the, the print, the negative stolen and destroyed and all that sort of jazz. But you know what? The, 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 the incredible... So the film Burn Hollywood Burn, it was written by Joe Esterhaus and it was directed by Arthur Miller. He was a, he, he was a kind of veteran of comi- uh, comedy films. And J- Joe Esterhaus and Arthur Miller fell out this is in real life, fell out during the making, the editing of the film. So Arthur Hiller successfully got his name removed off the film and Alan Smithy replaced. So the film, an Alan <laughs> Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, is directed by action, actually Alan Smithy. But that's it's a delicious irony. Nuts. That's like something where Isn't you feel it? that's been orchestrated. <laughs> you would think, it, like, I remember at the time I was so, I remember reading about it back in the, in the late 90s and thinking, is this is this a meta joke? Is it a, yeah. is it a joke? It, it wasn't. does play like that. It's so nuts. It wasn't. It was totally a detuvian film, and the film was released by Buena Vista, and it was a complete flop. And um, <laughs> and subsequently, it 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 was the last kind of credited like feature film uh, uh, Alan Smithy title. Burn Hollywood. Burn. Is the movie really that bad? It's worse than Showgirls. Written by Joe Westerhaus. Directed by Alan Smithy. Because everyone knew, the, the kind of, the, the, the from the early 90s on, everyone knew about the whole Alan Smithy thing. And it was kind of like, even I found like BBC documentaries who are kind of like doing fake documentaries trying to track down this elusive Alan Smithy director. And when the BBC are making documentaries about that in the early in the early 90s, then you go, mm, okay, this, this, uh, this uh, facade is. No, people is, is just not make up their own anymore. names, don't they? They just put down whatever they feel like it. They just come up with something random. Well, do you? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, this is thing. So, do you know any other films? So, there was there was one other kind of like big budget movie 
that came out uh, a couple of years later. Uh, but it didn't use that was, it was where the director took his name off the film. Do you know which film it is, Kevin? Um, is it Supernova? Yes, it is. And what was the name? I was going to say Supernova the, the, or Virus because uh, I get those. Two oh, films it's Supernova! Confused. It's Supernova. I'm pretty certain it's Supernova. Yeah. Oh, so that was the one where uh, it was Walter Hill was the original director of that, and what, for whatever yeah. reason, um, he felt that things went sideways on him. And I, th- as memory serves, Francis Ford Coppola came in and he directed a lot of crazy stuff like zero G sex scenes, where James Spader and Angela Bassett are shagging each other in in zero gravity. Right. It's a it's a it's a dumb film. Um, but it was an expensive film. There's a trailer to that, which if you go go online and, and look at it, it's the most early 2000s trailer you can think of because it's, it, it's sort of like a, a tense action horror film, but mm-hmm. uh, the trailer is set to uh, Mama Told Me Not To Come and they sort of play it like a comedy. It's a, it's a really bizarre choice and I think the oh, tagline wow. of the film is uh, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh, so they no. were really trying. I can't believe that you said. But, yeah. Oh lordy! Supernova. That's it's awful. it's not worth watching, to be honest. Or maybe something so dangerous that the only way somebody could finally get rid of it was by burying it. And he's about to turn the heavens. This thing is changing you in the most amazing ways. Into hell. I wish you hadn't have done that. I wish you hadn't have done that either. I I know I actually know I've seen it, but I am like you. I have zero memory of that film whatsoever. Um, so, but also the other thing about uh, the Alan Smithy name is the reason there was no there was no use in using it anymore is because the internet came about and everyone knew sites like Ancient Ain't Cool News merged and Dark Horizons and stuff like that were all every. IMDb? IOTA of film news. IMDb, yeah, true, of course. <laughs> that would be it. Every IOTA <laughs> of film news. But these were, but the, the Antiku news were, they were trawling for behind the scenes news and they were looking for any any gossip. They were taking emails from anyone and anywhere and yeah. uh, putting them up as articles online. So there was, there was no uh, credible journalism going on. It was just pure movie gossip, you know, going straight up mm. online. So. Any film that was even close to going into production or in development was all discussed. All scripts were being read and they were all being reviewed online. So basically, the cat was out of the bag for every production. You couldn't hide who was involved. But I, I love how Hollywood always can turn, uh, uh, try to turn a negative into a uh, into box into into cash. And yeah. what happened in the nineteen in the in the 90s in particular with the dominance of the DVD format was the the double dip phenomenon where studios released their films on DVD and then they would uh, almost immediately re- say, this is the unrated version or the yeah, uncut yeah. version or the director's cut version. So we had like, you know, versions of like Exorcist 4, two different, the one made by Rennie Harlan, the one made by Paul Schrader. Like, you know, you could buy them both, you know? So there's no such thing as an Adam Smithy movie anymore. That was insane it was just like they did that though, where they decided to take the same right. script and let... Uh, you know, you couldn't get two more contrasting directors, either Paul Schrader or Rennie Harlan, and yeah. both films. Have are, you seen any of them? Have you I've seen, seen both of them? them. Yeah, so yeah, both and they're shite. <laughs> <laughs> Exorcist Three is the one to watch. That's the, the oh yeah, that's the good. good sequel. Yeah, that was that's one really good. That's 
there was there's a director's cut of that as well, isn't it? That's who it was. William Peter Blatty directed. It is, and for a novelist to to make a film as accomplished as that, it's remarkable. Yeah, he he had definite chops. So um, that's one that if you like the original, definitely check out the third one because it's it's a spectacular horror film, and it it the sound design in that film particularly is sort of really engaging. I don't know what it is whether they decided to ADR the whole film, but because uh, they did, they did it that way, uh, and and sort of created the soundscape um, in post production. Uh, it it just has a lovely feel to it. It's sort of really evocative and and cool. Definitely watch that one. I go. I want to watch that again. I really do want to watch that again. Um, yeah, and that was that's the one where there's, there's a there is a director's cut of that. But film you can as well. skip you can skip the uh, the two um, sequels. <laughs> okay 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 i will do um but yeah so we've we've kind of entered into this weird era where like you talked about justice league was in a classic example but oh yeah like for example like we're, we're in the strange place where ridley scott when promoting i remember this at the time when promoting kingdom of heaven its theatrical release he was literally already promoting the director's cut DVD, which was had an extra forty-five or fifty minutes of footage, which he says, "Well, that's the better. That's going to be the better version of the movie. The one that's coming out in DVD." Soon. And he he was and right to be honest. It is a much, right. much better film. I just watched it less than a year ago, and mm. it's a much tight. And I wouldn't say not, not, I'm not saying tighter. I'm just saying it's a it, it's got a better pace. It's got a better yeah. flow, and the character the character journey is far more impactful. Whereas the the theatrical cut was just it was just rushed. I would believe. Be without fear in the face of your enemies. Safeguard the helpless, even if it leads to your death. That is your oath. Rise a knight! Rise a knight! Yeah, uh, he's someone that always, uh, if you see he's got a director's cut out, always give it a go uh, Mm because it can be worth it, I think. Um, so, Kevin, finally, after all of that talk about Alan Smithy, his beginnings in 1968 uh, with Death of a Gunslinger. Death of and a gunfire, his death uh, in 1996. De- <laughs> uh, yeah, with Burn Hollywood Burn. I want to go to my favourite, I want to bring you to my favourite Alan Smithy scene from my favourite Alan Smithy film. And okay. it is it is a film that was written by Judas Booth. And it was adapted from Frank Herbert's novel, and um. it is 1984's Dune. <laughs> you are about to enter a world where the unexpected. Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secret. Of course we know that 1984's Dune was directed by David Lynch, but... There have been several cuts of Dune, and one in particular was a three-hour extended TV pan and scan version of Dune, which I watched for this episode. I watched the whole three hours. I found it. I'm going to actually have a DVD copy of it, and I watched it. And oh my God, I can say that I I did it for everyone out there, and uh, you don't have to do the same thing. But I have... 
A very, is it the pan and scan that, that screws yeah. it, or is it just the oh. pacing? Oh, what, no. What so? It's okay. First of all, I, I, I'll uh, be concise. Uh, first of all, they replaced the very, very, uh, I, uh, in the theatrical cut, there's uh, an exposition dump. It was, it was done by um, Virginia Madison, and she's talking directly to camera. Her beginning is the very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. And they remove that and they replace it with a 10 minutes, 10 minutes dialogue dump. In the year 6,041, before the reign of the Padishah emperors, the universe was ruled by thinking machines with human minds, computers and conscious robots. But also the other thing that they did in the in the, the extended TV cut is that whenever a character no in whenever a character appeared on screen, they literally would have that same voiceover dude would literally just talk about do an do a character exposition dump. Here is Baron. This sounds like a book report. Yeah, it is kind of like that. It's awful. And also, they took out a lot of the weird, weird, creepy stuff. Like Baron Harkonnen, there's the, the really, really David Lynchy, like... Like Patrick Stewart. On, you know, well, I have a story about Patrick Stewart, right? Do you know that Patrick Stewart was hired by accident for Dune, right? Because the film was produced by Dino De Laurentiis, right? And it was a, this was an expensive uh, film, right, to make. Yeah. But Dino De Laurentiis cut corners wherever he could cut corners. And they shot it down in Mexico. Shocking. And, you know, <laughs> I know. And Patrick Stewart, they, they hired this actor called Patrick Stewart and uh, off of, a, I think, a, a headshot. Flew him over. And when he lands and arrived for his costume uh, test, it was the wrong Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Is that true? They intended to hire a totally different Patrick Stewart. Well, they, they got in contact with the wrong that. Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they got the right Patrick Stewart. They ended up with the Patrick Stewart they deserved. They and oh, well, I love, I love Patrick Stewart. Um, we all so love it's, Patrick it's, Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those films that I find completely, even in this Alan Smithy weird, uh, slow, turgid, pan and scan, ugly TV, like low-res version, I still was able to find the things about it that I really enjoy in the theatrical cut. And the things I love about David Lynch's Dune are, first and foremost, the production design and the costume design, okay? But the thing about, the thing I love about this film is he you see you see David Lynch's uh, aesthetic and his his inner style and some of the themes are there if you look if you sit there and you kind of let it wash over you you can you can feel the David Lynchiness of it and if you like David Lynch I most certainly say watch this film and enjoy it because a lot of this film I believe is really an important part of his career and the making of David Lynch and someone else's career, right? Um, the scene I'm going to pick specifically is the very first scene in the film. And that scene is uh, in, in, in uh, this grand reception hall of the Emperor of the Known Universe. And he is, and we just, it's a scene which doesn't feature any of our main characters, okay? But why, why I love it is because, first of all, the reception hall is beautifully decorated. The costume designs, they're like, uh, I would say, 
uh, opulent. S- they're opulent, absolutely. They're absolutely, and they're also they're also severe and unnerving. Even the the the, yeah. the Bene Gesserits, the the, the nun type characters. But the thing that really gets me about the scene, the the thing that really, even watching in the pan and scan version, is that the emperor is unnerved because he's been he he uh, he's receiving this these a guest an unannounced guest and everyone has to leave the room and it's like who's here it's like oh there's such and such a character here and everyone's like he's like everyone get the hell out and all of a sudden these big huge doors uh, slide open and these this what i would describe as what comes through that big hanger sized door is it's like batman's tim burton's batman's locomotive it's you know the batmobile that kind of long Black yeah, sheeny kind of thing. Bullet shape. Only imagine it's a steam train. Easy, yeah, my lord. And it pulls in and there's like, you know, the steam is blowing off it. And flanking on either side. And it has like the shield kind of around it as well, keeping whatever's inside hidden. And flanking this, this bat locomotive are these shaved-headed characters they're pale and they're creepy looking the Bene Gesserit witch must leave and they're wearing like these heavy plastic clothing now <laughs> just and there's something you immediately feel that weirdness it's not it's Star like, Wars is you, it it's like the minute that oh, this opens not. up you're thinking we're, we're not in Kansas anymore it's very creepy and also the mad thing about it I was talking about Dino cutting corners right those those heavy plastic uh, clothing that these kind of strange uh, humanoid ball characters are wearing are, are actually used cadaver bags. Genuinely used cadaver bags. Like body bags? Body bags. And yeah. the actors didn't know they were wearing body bags. Um, <laughs> I'm, not as, I'm not so much interested in what's going on in the drama of the scene. What compels me is that it's the, the aesthetic, the David Lynch aesthetic of this film is right there in in this opening scene. It's a mood setter. It truly is. And if you are not interested in seeing the film, but interested in seeing what's really good about the film, I would really recommend just watching the opening scene, watching Virginia Madsen's kind of like opening narration and this opening scene. But here's a kind of the the aside. I said to you that that, uh, that kind of like locomotive was very Batman-esque. Do you know who was incredibly influenced by this film? Tim Burton? <laughs> I mean, you, you did set look, me up for that. You did say Batman about three times. So I mean. Of course. Um, <laughs> but Tim Burton, he was very... You can see it because I I saw it before I actually learned this information. I did feel, I said, Jesus, that kind of reminds me of the Batmobile, that kind of like that, that machine that's there. But also in the film, the... Um, the the Fremen characters are kind of like the the hero uh, characters, uh, you know, the Sand People. Effectively, wear these kind of like uh, beautifully designed suits that keep them alive out in the desert. And I re- I remember looking at it. I remember kind of thinking, oh, they're really cool looking, and they heavily influenced the look of Tim Burton's Batman's bat suit. And not only that, but apparently the sandworm and how the sandworm was uh, operated and made uh, influenced. Beetlejuice, yeah. Yeah. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. So um, I feel that Tim Burton, we had we have a lot of interesting things coming out of this. This is it, isn't it? It's like even a film 
that is considered to be a creative failure. Films can affect people in different ways and they're as subjective as music. And every bad movie out there is someone's favourite film. Um, You never know whether that person that is influenced by uh, a bad film can make something really beautiful out of it. So, yeah, that's the power of movies. Yeah. Another thing that I kind of, I, that I, I want, I kind of reframed this in my head. There was David Lynch before he made Dune and there was a David Lynch after he made Dune. Everyone looks back at David Lynch now and says, well, he made Dune. But I'm, I'm saying we wouldn't have the David Lynch that we have now if he hadn't made Dune. Because I, I found interviews with him where he was, he had been offered, apparently he'd been offered Return of the Jedi and he turned it down. He was, yeah. Yeah, taken up this uh, franchise and you can see why he would do it but before this he'd done Eraserhead which yeah was a very very uh, experimental and he was a, a, a surreal type of film of uh, a nightmarish vision of someone going through their own personal traumas but then we had The Elephant Man which mm. if you look on the, on, the, on the surface it's a beautiful film and you look on the surface it's not uh, Storytelling-wise, it's a fairly straightforward story that is telling. Hello. My name is John Merrick. I'm very pleased to meet you. So he did The Alpha Man. So then the next op- the film opportunity he has is Dune. And if you listened, and I listen uh, listening to a lot of the interviews he did on set and promoting the film, David Lynch was looking at this, uh, at this uh, series of films as his Star Wars. He was in the middle of writing the sequel, he was looking at that, looking at it from a point of view that he was going to make three films, and he was talking about. I feel that David Lynch, at that point in his career, was looking to become a, maybe a studio filmmaker, but someone who a was kind filmmaker. of embracing this. Uh, yeah, a big, bigger budget, George Lucasy type filmmaker, quite possibly. And it wasn't until this film was a creative flop or creative disappointment for him that you that after this you see him having a uh, a philosophy of I am I am and also he he lamented the fact that he didn't have final cut. This is what we're going back to about he didn't have final cut on Dune. David, do you want to say anything about Dune? Not a lot, <laughs> <laughs> except to once again say that it's very important for a filmmaker to have final cut, total creative control. And I knew that even before Dune. And for some reason, I thought, well, everything will be okay. And I signed the contract. And everything wasn't okay. So it was a a terrible thing, as I always say, um, the film was not a success, and uh, so I died the death in that regard, and then I felt I had sold out, so I died twice. And when he got the opportunity to remove his name for the TV edit, he did so, but he didn't have final cut. Uh, he didn't have final cut on Dune, but he had to put his name on it. But from Dune out, uh, onwards, he always had final cut in all of his films, and there was a, a a great creative partnership was formed between himself and Kyle MacLachlan, who had never performed an, on film before Dune as well. And you, I feel that if it wasn't for Dune, we wouldn't have the David Lynch going forward because David Lynch from that point forward in his career just went, screw it. I am going to do the films that I want to do. 
I am not going to be uh, hampered by huge budgets. I am just uh, going to stick to my guns and make the film that I want to make come hell or high water. And I want to fail on my own terms. And that's why I think he doing hurts him even to this day. That's a, yeah. a cheat, an absolute cheat. And you have yeah. broken the concept of the show. Uh, best Alan Smitty scene. Neither of us chosen Alan Smitty from. <laughs> you know, that's not our <laughs> fault. That's Hollywood's fault. Here we go again then. Now it's my turn to figure out what next week is. God help you. I'm just so God glad. I'm so glad I get to sit back and kick my old heels up and watch David Lynch's extended cut at least once a night. Again? You're going to watch it again? I'm never going to watch it ever again. I honestly feel I took one for the team there. So, Kevin. <laughs> hey. Hi. Yes. I have to roll the wheel of death for you. Oh, sorry. Okay. The wheel of <laughs> the wheel of to- the wheel of film fun topics uh, yes. for you. Are you ready? No, but spin it. Doesn't matter. It's already spun. <laughs> it's going around and around and around and. I'm genuinely <gasps> okay. Yeah, this, please, I don't want to be exhausted okay. again. <laughs> okay. Hit me. Hit me. Yeah. Okay, I am going to hit you, Kevin. I swear to God, I'm going to hit you so hard because it is Uh, best fight scene. Best fight scene. (laughs) You are getting hit. You're getting uh, body slammed. You are getting, you know, roundhouses and uppercuts. And uh, yeah, so best fight scene. I keep getting these gigantic topics where it's impossible to pick the right one. So best fight scene. That's a big one. Again, there's got to be about 15,000 scenes. Um, like you're you're going to have to do history of cinema again. No. <laughs> oh. oh, Christ, Kevin! I'm so glad I'm not you right now. <laughs> I don't have anything funny to say, well, because I'm actually just trading it. I'm just like, oh, Christ, Kevin. Hey, where can people find you and reach you? They can. They can find me on Twitter, but please don't reach me on there. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm right. on Twitter under at Kevin uh, and we also have a show uh, Twitter handle, which is at Best Bits Pod. Um, yeah. And you can email us if you want to to get in touch with us, send us sort of like scene suggestions, any feedback. You know, we're screenwriters, we're used to getting notes. So you can email us <laughs> at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com and um, yeah. we'd love to hear from you. So definitely, you know, drop us a line and we'll where can people find you? People can find me also on Twitter. I am under Willems Film. W-I-L-L-U-M-S-F-I-L-L-U-M. And <laughs> I've failed to mention it the last few times. We also have a Facebook page. And it is the Best Bits Pod Facebook thing. So if you are one of the, one of those people who are on Facebook, uh, you, when you go there, I will see your comments. And I will relay them to Kevin. Nudge your man. So l- Tell her to like the Facebook man. page like the Facebook page I'm there <laughs> come over come over and say hi um, well, we have a few likes on over, over there but yeah so um, yeah also, we're, uh, Twitter and Facebook it sounds so like conceited to ask people to do this but if you can rate us and review us and, and give us you know the most positive review that you can do um, if you're yeah. enjoying the show obviously uh, because what it does is it triggers the algorithm into recommending the show to other people that may have an interest in this sort of uh, uh, show that we do and uh, we'd love that it would be the, the easiest way that you can help us out and sort of help us to um, uh, get the word out there about the, the show because it's really just done to us we don't have a network behind yeah. us like a podcast network 
um, it's all down to you guys listening um, so we'd love that and, so. and, and say and a big big huge thanks to anyone and everyone who has already given us a five star rating on Apple and given us we've gotten plenty of really five star reviews already so listen anyone who's listened to that who has already done so thank you thank you really appreciate it it's massive it's great thank you okay next week kapow see fighting Kevin alright good luck cheers Best Bits Podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, race, review, all that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits with Will and Kevin. No, the best bits with Kevin and Willem. For the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us 3 euro. <laughs> you okay. can't remember what? <laughs> oh my god. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits with Kevin and Willem. Talking deviantly. Okay, right. I'm going to find the fucking thing. Because it's going to be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it, that'll do. Because it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened to it. I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like, nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought, they hadn't listened to it yet. And then, yeah. of course, I was delighted with that. And people hated it. <laughs> it's not, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy on the ears in, a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice. So there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm I'm, I'm Hogwarts and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. Yeah, that's exactly She's good. Did you so. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage. I'm not, I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God. I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. The best is Kevin Willem about the telly and the latest film. Talking shite the dynamic duo. Don't forget, now you owe three euro. Come off the stage, old That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could have happened. How do you operate? I I I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet, and does I that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat, in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying you just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man. I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there 
sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about. Should I start a timer? Have have we just started? Start the timer because I'm raring to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All All I know is I saw a poster very recently. It went... There's a Madam Web film, and I'm... What is this? So it's a Spider-Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider-Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought... I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago, and I thought it was just tedious. Are you it's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvels? Well, yeah. she's in it. Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel two. It was just sort of like it was another one of those films that felt like Ant Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and mm-hmm. airless, and you know you just have sound stage after sound stage and. I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. I feel like yes. there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue, to the hairstyles, to the costumes, to the sets, to the music, to everything just feels... It's artificial, wafer-thin, just wafery, artificially, no sustenance, no satisfaction. You know protein in it whatsoever. You feel like, oh, yeah. wow, I just, I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry. It feels like eating plastic. Okay. On the whole, it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them. Yet, I found The Flash really fun because it was—it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of the Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went into Madame Web, not really giving a fuck about the genre, but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it. And the trailer was awful. It had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition. And I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage. And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played it out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, All I've seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but Dave almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I had to listen to it. <laughs> he was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Kathy was pushing back and... 
I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Cathy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I, <laughs> <laughs> but you That's know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I liked Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. Thank you.